You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark. Um, Happy Mother's Day, by the way, and we've got an interesting subject to deal with today. Uh, We're going to talk about hell, so uh, happy Mother's Day. And um, I'm actually very excited about it, Uh, and it was funny, we got in here today and we're going to put our air conditioners in this week. We've got a nice, cool breeze. We came in, it was a little stuffy this morning, and I was kind of frantically thinking, okay, are are we going to be able to get the air conditioners in on time? What's this thing going to look like? It was a little stuffy. And um, so thankfully, we're going to preach on hell with a nice breeze, though. So that'll be nice rather than it being hot and stuffy. No, actually, what I want to talk about today, interestingly enough, is that I really want to share about three different perspectives on hell. Um, Two of them, I believe, you can be faithful to the scripture and hold to. Uh, One of them, um, I believe, is is not something that we can hold to and still be consistent in uh, as evangelical Christians. Now, many of us have uh, grown up in uh, all different types of homes, and the word hell carries with it all different connotations. What's interesting about that is that why we have to deal with the subject of hell is that in times past, hell was almost something that would be a lead-in on uh, why a person would want to come to faith in Christ. Today, hell is one of the major obstacles that keeps people away from making a decision to follow Christ. Um, for instance, I'll just come out with one of, the, one of the honest, most difficult questions is, how could a loving God send people to hell? How many people have ever thought about that? I have. Um, let me start off by saying that hell is the most sobering uh, t- t- uh, topic. It is the most um, difficult subject to grasp or to wrestle with, and if you don't have a problem with hell, I would suggest that you haven't thought about it long enough or hard enough. There's nothing good about hell. There's nothing about it that in us we should be able to say, yeah, I'm a fan of that. It's really heartbreaking. There's nothing about it that should... um, you know, really bring us to a point where we say, hey, this is really good. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 9. We've been preaching through this book, and in verse 42, uh, Jesse, as you know, took, uh, he preached out of, I believe it was First Peter for the last two weeks because he didn't want to preach on hell. So we said, okay, no problem, we'll preach on divorce next week. So it's a great thing. We're going right through the Bible, and there's some really difficult subjects, and we want to be faithful to the text. And we want to figure out, what does this look like? And uh, that's what it is. So Mark chapter 9, verse 42, the scripture tells us, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if he had a, a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled, that's interesting, enter life crippled, then with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, which on a side note, I'm not quite sure how your foot causes you to sin. I, I could figure out hands. never met a person that has a foot that causes them to sin. So I think we see this is somewhat symbolic here. Your two feet, it'd be better to enter life lame with two feet than be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone who will be salted with fire. Salt is good, 
But if you salt, if your salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's interesting about this when we approach the subject of hell is that if you were raised in Christianity, um, in a Christian home, hell is often almost the lead-in point of why you should come to faith in Christ. It's almost the ultimate ultimatum. Either serve Jesus or go to hell. And maybe you were that little kid growing up in Sunday school class and you were given this ultimatum and you were the rebel. So they said, you know, Johnny, do you want to go to hell or do you want to go to heaven? And you said, I want to go to hell. And then the teacher begins to describe what hell is like. Well, Johnny, I don't think you want to go there. It's hot. Well, I love summer, right? Uh, No, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, your parents don't want to go there. Well, I don't want to obey my parents. And, and, and the teacher has to kind of begin to negotiate with Johnny until ultimately Johnny realizes that hell is the place that no one wants to go. And then Johnny makes a decision to follow Jesus, and Jesus will save him from hell. Now, what's interesting about this is that, and I, we're going to discover a couple things about this, is that, first of all, the word hell is not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. It's interesting to think about that. There's no hell mentioned in the Old Testament. There is the word Sheol, which is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek form of uh, the Old Testament as Hades. But Sheol, in the sense, is not an um, eternal hell. It's simply talking about the state in which unrighteous people, those outside of the covenant of God, would be cut off from the memory of the living. It is, in a sense, an extinction. It's a place where these people are gone. Now, the prophet Daniel does talk about a resurrection in the Old Testament, but the truth is the idea of hell is so embryonic in its form that it's really uh, truthfully absent. What you do see is that the Old Testament prophets again and again and again are speaking about the wicked, the unrighteous, those that are outside of the covenant of God being cut off, destroyed, and judged. See, in the Old Testament, we see God has this covenant people, the children of Israel. He's made a covenant with them, and that they are in right relationship with that covenant as long as they follow him. We see that God provides for them a sacrificial system because they can't follow all of the laws perfectly. So God says, I'm going to give you a means to atone for this. So you're going to make these sacrifices regularly. When we come into the New Testament, though, We see this word hell mentioned sparingly, if I can actually say, surprisingly. The more I looked at the subject of hell, I started to think, okay, well, what does this look like? Because I've seen so many people kind of been labeled hellfire and brimstone preachers. And one of the biggest obstacles when I talk to people about Christianity is hell. So I started to look, well, how many times is the word hell mentioned in the Bible it's, it's mentioned around a dozen times in the New Testament, surprisingly. It's mentioned a few times in the book of Revelation under the term lake of fire. We actually see that the Apostle Paul never uses the word hell. Isn't that interesting? He writes two-thirds of the New Testament, and he never uses the word hell once. We see that Peter uses the word hell. James uses it in a figurative sense of having your tongue lit on fire by hell. And as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, wow, it's amazing how we have 
blown hell into almost the primary reason that Jesus came, to save people from hell. And in that, I would like to recalibrate our understanding and say this. Jesus speaks about hell literally. He speaks about it seriously. However, he does not say, believe in me and you won't go to hell. I want to say that's good news this morning. Jesus did not come to save you from hell. Jesus came to give you eternal life. Jesus did not come to save us from hell. We actually, if we're not careful, can set up this false dichotomy as if God is somehow uh, willingly desiring to send people to hell. And what we see actually is this. That biblically speaking, in 2 Peter, we see that hell was not created for people. That's good news. Hell, whatever this is, and I think our words are limited in being able to describe it to its fullest extent, because the truth is, I think hellfire, brimstone, and worms only go so far. I think hell is a far more terrible place than our words can even describe. I don't think it's something that we should rejoice at and look at, as if something that's not serious. But what we have to understand and what we have to wrestle with is that hell, in our own terminology, the, the words that we strike up, maybe what is the image that comes to your mind when we think of hell? Of course, it's not something that's good. Some people describe their words or their life as hell on earth, and I believe that some people's lives, that's probably all that they can grasp for to say. But what's interesting is that the development of the theology behind hell has not been consistent with the image that many of us have in our minds today. A lot of us think of hell as this place, that if you're a good person, you go to heaven. If you're a bad person, you go to hell. That's not consistent with Christian theology. The truth is, eternal life is found in Christ, and those outside of Christ will be judged on their own merit. In other words, when God looks at our lives, going back to the Old Testament, he is a God of perfection, of completion demanding perfection from people. And yet, we can't live up to it enough. We don't have that ability to make a perfection for ourselves. So Christ then comes, dies in our place, and offers his merit to us. He is the perfect Old Testament sacrifice. The book of Hebrews would call him the great high priest who made the final sacrifice and doesn't have to continue to make those sacrifices again. Amen. Thank you. That's good news. Christ has made that sacrifice once and for all. But what we do see is that those who choose to not place their faith in Christ consciously choose a place outside of God's presence, outside of his presence in a loving, caring way. Perhaps we could even say they decide to experience his wrath rather than his grace and choose for themselves hell. This is the language that C.S. Lewis used when he talks about hell. He says that hell is locked from the inside out. That's kind of an interesting phrase. Some people disagree with that, and uh, whether you take that as literal or symbolic, it's interesting where he talks about hell as something that people are choosing rather to be with themselves, separated from God, separated from Christ, rather than uh, being consistent with God brings us to three different perspectives on hell. The first one, which I don't think we can remain uh, faithful to the biblical text or faithful to the scripture, is called universalism. 
Uh, There's a branch of it called Christian Universalism, which essentially says that hell is um, symbolic, if anything, and at the end of the day, everyone will be reconciled to God. Whether you are Jewish, whether you are Buddhist, whether you are Muslim, whether you are an agnostic, whether you are an atheist, whether you are a hypocrite, whether you are whatever, everyone will ultimately be reconciled to God because God is in Christ, gracious to everyone, and hell is just symbolic. This is universalism. The Christian universalism form of that would put the flare on it that says God is so loving in Christ, ultimately he'll reconcile everyone to him. And if if hell, they would say, if hell is a literal place, ultimately God will overcome hell. I would suggest to you that that type of theology is not rooted in the scripture. It's rooted more in a uncomfortable feeling of how hell sits in your stomach. I'm not talking about when you eat something bad. Let me explain. Have you ever felt like the philosophical implications of being a Christian? There's some heavy stuff that we believe. We believe that we have the truth, the light of the world. And we, in that, we believe that others don't. Now let me encourage you, if you're a Christian today and that makes you uncomfortable, let me first say that we are not the only religion. In fact, every major world religion makes exclusive truth claims. Everyone does. We are not the only ones at Christians that claim to have, if you will, the corner on truth. And if you talk to somebody that says something along the lines of, well, you know, I think everybody has a piece of the puzzle. The truth is that if you talk to somebody that is a clear representative of that religion, they will adamantly disagree with you. You will not find a real orthodox Muslim that looks at you and says, well, at the end of the day, Christians and Jews were all going to get together and have a good time. They don't believe that. So it's misrepresenting their faith to say that they don't have an exclusive truth claim. Every major world religion, other than the one you made up in your bathroom this morning, has exclusive truth claims. That is not, Christianity is not the only one that says that this is the right way. The truth is all religions bring to them a suitcase that they open up at the table and say, I'm right and you're wrong. Now whether that makes us uncomfortable, that is the reality of the world that we live in. So then we have to grasp with the question as Christians is then do what we believe is what we believe true or not. It's not a matter of if we claim exclusive truth claims, we have to find what we believe and we've preached on that multiple times and you can go back to in our sermons in Mark talking about the the historic nature of Christ's resurrection and what we build our faith. Now this uncomfortable feeling though of not wanting to be exclusive, we don't want to exclude anybody can cause us to philosophically wash over the scriptures to the point where we just say, well, hell's really not a real place. If it is, at the end of the day, everything's going to come back together. It will take some texts that seem in the New Testament at first glance to be incredibly inclusive and will misapply those to set our uneasy nerves at rest. Now, I would love to say that there is no such thing as a hell. I would love to say that because anybody that, if you ever meet anybody that's like um, fascinated by the idea of hell, that's not a person that you want to have in your close circle of friends. It's just not. Because there's nothing about it that the Bible describes as something good. The scripture even tells us that God is brokenhearted at the death of the unrighteous. Even God himself is not rejoicing over the fact of the unrighteous perishing. 
He wishes that all would come to repentance and to a knowledge of him. So this first view of hell, and I would say that an honest handling of the scripture doesn't really let us land there, is a inclusive form of universalism. The second view of hell is what would be referred to as the traditional view of hell. This is held throughout the entire um, church history, although challenged at certain points and had an uneasy um, feeling to some people. And the traditional view of hell is that those outside of Christ, that when they perish, will suffer eternal conscious punishment. It's a punitive punishment. It's that these people did not receive Christ, therefore eternal conscious punishment. This is held throughout history by some great men of God. Perhaps you have heard of the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he used this as an evangelistic fervor of saying we need to save people from a literal, eternal, conscious burning. I believe that this is a view of hell that is held by most people, um, the majority of the church, and this is a Orthodox, what is the church tradition, this is actually, although we're not Catholic, this is the official uh, Catholic doctrine, um, although they would put in a little bit of form of purgatory for some of them that couldn't get there on the first try, which I would think would probably be about all of us, if we're honest, if we had a purgatory. The third view is a uh, conditionalism, what's also referred to as to be an annihilationist. This is also held throughout church history, and what it says is that eternal life is conditional upon salvation in Christ. It says that the soul in and of itself is not immortal. There's nothing about the human soul that lives forever. It draws upon the Old Testament saying that the absence of a hell says that because there is not really this idea of an immortal soul that's actually thought to be maybe a Greek thought, a Platonic thought that was brought in later, that eternal life and the message of Christ to believe in him and you'll receive eternal life, that is, in essence, the good news of the gospel. That God has not come to just get certain people to heaven and certain people to hell, but that God in Christ actually grants us immortality. God gives us the ability to live forever at the second resurrection. That's also a view that I believe can be held and has been held throughout church history by some wonderful theologians as a potential um, view of hell that's consistent with Orthodox Christianity. Now let me make a quick note here. I have to be careful because we don't get to just pick which form of hell we like. It's not like uh, you're going through the ice cream line and you go, okay, I like that one, I don't like that one, I'll choose this one. Uh, we don't have the liberty to do that. But what we do have the liberty to do is to be able to be open, humble, and be able to approach the scripture and ask, what are the direct implications of this? When I look at Jesus, he's saying that if you lead a little one, a child, somebody that's small, away from him, you tempt them to sin, it would be better for you to tie around a millstone around your neck and drown in the sea. So what that says, and then he immediately parallels that to hell, what he is trying to say to us is that this is not a good time. Amen. <laughs> Hell is not a vacation. It's not something to be desired of. It's not something that's good. It's better for you not to just drown, but it would be better rather than tempt them to tie a millstone around your neck and drown to the bottom of the sea. And then Jesus begins to speak about hell again, literally 
and seriously by saying this. That if you are tempted into sin, it's better that you cut off your arm. Which I would have to say, that would be some serious Christian discipleship. Imagine joining a church like that. You walk in, and this guy doesn't have eyes, this person doesn't have ears, this one doesn't have a leg, this one doesn't have a finger. You know, coming into church, is like, why is everybody maimed in here? You know, like everyone, like 95% of the people, you would really know who's, who's a hypocrite, right? Who's committed our form of discipleship. Uh, so what's been going on? Man, I've been having a rough week, you know. We'll just put out your hand. Let's get this thing over with. We've got a surgeon on staff at the church, right? That's a, that would be a very serious commitment to discipleship. Now, I think the danger here is, um, I do believe that Jesus is speaking symbolically, but I don't think he's just speaking symbolically in the sense of we look at it and go, well, he doesn't really mean what he means. I think Jesus is trying to give us the full weight to saying hell is serious, it is real, and it is not a place that you want to go. It is not a place that you want to go. Now, I'm excited about home groups this week because there's going to be some great discussion around hell, and I would encourage you, this is a great topic to be able to come, and we can really think about the direct implications of this. My point of this morning's message as we begin to bring it to its application, because this is more of a lecture than it is a preaching message, is, okay, hell. What do we do with hell? How does this really sit into our theology, into our life? How do we share with somebody the gospel? I'm so challenged the fact that the book of Acts does not use the word hell one time. I don't get that. I don't understand how Paul the Apostle can't use the word hell. Because in my growing up, and in most of the books that I read, the theology that I'm surrounded with, most preachers on TV, some of the church signs that you see, turn or burn, which is an unfortunate one to use, It's almost the lead-in. It starts off with, come to Christ or go to hell. The ultimate ultimatum. Now, what I would say is this, that if the only reason that you've come to Christ or the only reason that you're considering coming to Christ is an avoidance of hell, you are missing the point of why Christ came. The truth is, hell is a real, significant bad place, whether flames are literal or symbolic. If they are symbolic, it's something symbolic of something far worse than we can comprehend. Whatever this terrible, real place is, the point of Christianity is not to avoid that. It's not the destination, well, as long as I can avoid that, then I made it. Jesus comes to this world to make all things new. To bring us back to the humanity that we're supposed to experience. Really what we see at the end of the scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, actually 20, 21 and 22, is we see finally the ultimate destination, the lake of fire, where devil, angels, fallen angels are cast into the lake of fire and even death and Hades itself is consumed in this lake of fire. But God does something spectacular. He inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. This is the point of Christianity. And I don't want you to settle for anything else. And I hope that you're sitting here today, not because you were forced to, and not because you were scared into it. I really hope that we're not Christians because we live in fear. What a terrible way to... uh, To me, it's almost like... 
um, a lot of people view God as like the, and the only analogy I can give is kind of like, and I apologize, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but it's kind of like the, 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 the creeper girl in your high school, maybe you remember her, let me explain, that she was so in love with you, and you either, we either were in a relationship, or she became a stalker and she wanted to kill you. It's either like, I love you, let's be together forever, right? And it's this kind of warm embrace, and the moment you say no, I want to punish you and send you forever, I'm going to try to kill you. Right? She's like, I love you not. She pulls the mask off. That is not the way that we should approach the gospel because God is not dualistic. He's not divided. He's not confused. He's not wanting to send people to hell. That is not in the heart of God desiring to do this. God is not in love with you and then pulls a mask and he says, yes, I get to punish you. And let me also make another very strong point. Hell is not... Um, Satan's grounded. He's not the prince of the underworld. That's Greek mythology. Satan is not comfortable in hell and humans are uncomfortable. No. Satan, we see in the book of Revelation, is, is himself coming to a point of termination, of punishment, to a point of finally being put out of this world in completion. So if we have come to faith in Christ or perhaps if you live a life that is uneasy in your heart or your conscience because you're constantly going, well, I've got to go to church this week or I've got to do this because I don't want to go there. If you're doing that, let me encourage you today. You have a very unbiblical view of hell. You don't escape hell, if you will, because of your merit, because of your showing up at church, because of the good things that you do. That's not what this is. Hell was not created for you. Second Peter tells us it was created for the devil and for fallen angels. My hope is this, that you would live the abundant life that God has for you. That you would see that Christ is eternal life. Christ is not a ticket to heaven. He's not a stamp to heaven. He is eternal life which starts in the here and now. When you come to Christ, it's not that life gets perfect and everything, anything bad goes away. That's not it. But you finally found the meaning of life, which is something bigger and beyond you and is perfect. Let me say this. No one goes to the Grand Canyon that I know of and takes selfies. I just used the word selfie. I feel so stupid as the first time I ever said that word try to avoid it and it just came out. No one takes a mirror to the Grand Canyon and says, I look so good here, don't I? How narcissistic would that be? You know, no society rewards narcissism. We might give you a raise for it, but the truth is there's no society that gives rewards that type of egocentric thing. No one goes to the Grand Canyon. No one goes to the beach, to the ocean, and just stares at themselves in a mirror. No, because there's something in you that was created for something bigger than you that is, uh, has a sense of awe inside of you. Have you ever been just driving and you look at the mountains and you go, oh, wow. The sunset, you're flying in a plane, you see clouds, you plant a tree, whatever that is, and you just look at it and there's something in you that's just awe. You know, we are the only creatures 
that have that capacity. There's no fish, right, that's in the depths of the sea that's going, this is deep. Wow. This is cool. This is cool. There's no bird that's, that's in the middle of flying that goes, look how high I am. Look at the way I soar. Right? There's no cheetah that's in the middle of chasing down its prey that goes, do you see how fast I am? Yet, why as humans is there something in us with the pursuit of knowledge, with the pursuit of a desiring something beyond ourselves, that when we study the human body, we are in awe. When we study animals, we are in awe. When we look at this world and creation, we go, wow. Now that thing in you, that thing in you, the book of Romans says that God put that in the very core of who you are to show you there's something beyond yourself. And I want to tell you, this morning, because of Christ, you can live in union with the very thing that created all of that. The very thing that provokes awe inside of you, we can have right fellowship with him. The very thing that created this world, and listen, I'm a preacher, I'm not a scientist, I don't claim to be one, but the very extreme mathematical calculations that allowed this world, and whether you believe in a God of chance or the God of the Bible, it's outrageous. And when you see that, I get to look at it, and I can either say, yeah, I, okay, you know how to paint a sunset, but you don't know how to run my life. Okay, you, you, you know how to navigate this whole world in this universe, but you don't know how to run my life. You know, I know what marriage is to look like. I know what my life is to look like. I know what those things are. And I would suggest to you that you can do that for a time being, and maybe, unfortunately, for your whole life. But there is an opportunity to be in union to be in right relationship, and to come fully alive into what God has for us. That's why we come to faith in Christ. It's not turn or burn. It's not do you like air conditioning or do you like extreme heat. It's not it. Hell is a real, scary, terrible place. Whether that lasts eternally, if you're in a traditional view of hell, or if you think that it's a real place and it's temporarily and that you were conditional or annihilationist, ultimately believing that while people would go to hell, they would be extinguished after a while. Either way, that's not a happy ending. There's nothing about that that says this is happy. But what is happy is this, and I'm closing. God comes to give life and life abundantly. My prayer for you this morning is that you would say, am I living the abundant life? Is my life hell on earth? Am I living a life that ultimately promotes and glorifies the creator God? Or am I living a life that basically tries to say, how can I navigate this world on my own and live for myself? Whatever that looks like. I want us to search our hearts this morning because I have found a love greater than life. I've found a God that is better than an escape plan from hell. That's not why I serve him. I'll say this, if Jesus wasn't in heaven, I don't want to be there. If Jesus wasn't there, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in heaven just because it's the alternative of hell. 
I want to be wherever Jesus is. I don't want to be in hell. Why? Because he's not there. <laughs> That's why I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there just because it burns and it's long and it's whatever else it is. Of course, that doesn't sound like a good time. But I don't want to be there because he's not there. Because he is life. And in him, there's no darkness. There's no turning. He is the perfection that I found and that I want to share with you. I would suggest to you as we close that perhaps this is the way that we need to go about the gospel. Maybe that the way that we need to share Christ is not with the ultimate ultimatum at the beginning. I find the absence of hell strangely confusing and strangely comforting. I find the fact that Paul the Apostle doesn't use the word hell. He does use the word judgment. He does use the word destruction. But I find the fact that the word hell is absent strangely confusing and strangely comforting. Because what it shows is that I don't have to try to convince people, turn or burn. But what I do have to say is that there is an abundant life that is offered to you. And I would hate to see you settle for anything else because anything other than God, that's hell. Anything other than Christ is hell. Whether it's burning, whether there's worms, which some of you are like, I like to play with worms, right? Did anyone ever eat a worm here? I never got suckered in. Rich did, okay. <laughs> the gummy worm. Amen. Let's stand together. I want to encourage you this week as we go to home groups on Tuesday and Wednesday night. This is going to be a, a wonderful time to uh, reflect on hell. It's something that we don't do enough. We probably should do more. If you have questions about hell, thoughts, comments, concerns, frustrations, you can email Jesse Miller at jessemiller84 at gmail.com. And I'll be in Gettysburg next week, I think, preaching. So <laughs> I preach the hard one and then I leave. I'm kidding. Um, I would really encourage you to come out to home group and discuss what this looks like and try to figure it out. Because all I know from the Bible is hell is a terrible place that I don't want to go, but I'd rather be with Jesus. Can, we, can I pray for you this morning? I hope this helped you. I hope it spurred some thoughts. And uh, we've got a lot more discussion on this subject for the future. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are eternal life and abundant life. And that you did not come to this world to save people from hell. You came to set all things right. Lord, as we approach the subject of hell, we want to take it seriously. I want to take it um, not lightly. I want to take it seriously because you spoke about it seriously. And Lord, we want to be faithful to your word. But Lord, we also don't want to exalt things above you. I don't want to come to you because I'm afraid of hell. I want to come to you because you're eternal life. I don't want to come to you just because I'm trying to find a bomb for my conscience to, to be able to do things. Because Lord... You're just a means to an end if you're just an escape plan. But Lord, I thank you that today you are an end in yourself, that you are perfection, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is perfect by yourself. You are the God and there is no other. And this morning I pray for a church that would be shaped by abundant life, that we wouldn't live in a fear of hell, 
But Lord, we would be able to show people in this city and in this world that hell is a real serious place. But Lord, any place without you, that's hell. That really is. And we want to be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.